All right, Stacy, we have an elected official that wants to join our board. I have some hesitations, but wanted to know your thoughts. In your experience, if we approve this person, how will it shift the dynamic of the board? Great question. And I do think you want to tread carefully. <laughs> um, I think think your instincts are, are spot on here. So, you know, like any board member, I think elected officials don't get treated any different, right? So they have the same expectations as your other board members. They don't get off the hook, you know, let off the hook for fundraising because they have to fundraise for their own campaign, right? Like any of those things still, it's consistent with all your board members. I don't care if it's, you know, a gazillionaire, an elected official, uh, God, whatever, like they all have the same expectations. But um, I think that, I think you have to be sensitive. So I'm gonna share like a few things I've seen where it can go awry. And so so this kind of comes back to, are you willing to have the tough conversations? So um, nonprofits I know that have, brought on elected officials, oftentimes um, they do sometimes run into the elected officials really having their own agenda, you know, and, and it's very much a, it's it's not always an altruistic, like I care about your mission. And this is not every elected official. So if you're an elected official listening, please don't think this applies to you. But like, it's also about like, you know, is this about more like a campaign or visibility ploy um, cause you know, or like a way to attract more fundraising dollars from other board members by being on this board. So I think you really need to like check in on the person's why and their intentions of wanting to serve on the board. Um, and I also think, um, you know, you've got to maintain some degree of a perception of neutrality. I have seen organizations where they go and because they are leaning in one political direction, those are all like they get all board members that have that same, you know, political, you know, affiliation. And that really like back to when we think about diversity of of perspective and and background, like isn't healthy for an organization. So so we think you've got to be really balanced and be really intentional about about the balance. So if you're getting too many of, you know, elected officials from one side you know, if you've got like all all Democrats, you probably need to pepper in some Republicans. Like, I don't know, like you need to like make this balanced and it also is going to make for just a richer board. So those are some of my like things to say, make sure you do this and also that you're willing to have the difficult conversations. If if an elected official kind of goes rogue or starts like harassing people to meet with them or help support their campaign. That's not good either. And you've got to be willing to have those tough conversations. So, so what do you think about the risk of politicians typically, especially if they've been elected, they, they have lots of public statements, especially if they're running for reelection, they talk at board meetings or, you know, school board meetings or county commission meetings or whatever it is. And they always have positions and how much is your nonprofit on the hook for things that an elected official might say that that like maybe doesn't reflect what your nonprofit's for? Yeah, no, that's right. That's you got to be really, really careful with it. And I think, you know, we've had other questions in the past about people making um even political statements, board members that aren't elected officials, right? Making political statements on their social media. 
And there's those questions that have come up about how do you handle it? Are there guy right? Like, what are the guidelines? And so to me, at the end of the day, it all comes back to the organization. And so so you've got to have those really honest conversations, I think, up front and and probably do a lot of homework of what is how does this person represent themselves in public? What kinds of things are they saying? I I mean, I'm going to just be really blunt. I I think it's a risk and I think there's other ways to involve elected officials, not necessarily on your board. I think it can be really risky. So I sort of lean a bit cons- like uh, taking an approach on this where you got to be really careful, um, really, really careful because of what you're saying. The yeah, I feel like, yeah. yeah, the scrutiny is a huge, a huge piece of it. And they are public mouthpieces a lot of times that are saying things that their party might want them to say that that might be the opposite of what your mission is. And and having them on the board a lot of times is a risk. I think you really do need to step back, as you said, and say, why do you want this person on the board? Because this is kind of a rookie mistake that I see a lot of brand new organizations make because they they want the legitimacy yeah. that an elected official might come. You know, if you're bringing on somebody who's the mayor, you're like, you can say, hey, the mayor's on our board. But like in my experience, these people don't do a whole lot because they're no. so consumed with their own responsibilities that, and they're inevitably, they're on nine boards. Like if you look at, there there should be a limit to the number of boards that any board member is on. Agree. Because, right? Because you can't be on a hundred different boards and be expected unless, you know, unless that's all you do, unless your only job is to be a professional board member. And there aren't many of those. Um, that this elected official isn't going to give you necessarily the attention that a, that another board member might give you. And and I'd say be careful about thinking about the legitimacy of your board as a a something that's required to get donors or funders or the community to take you seriously, because it's really more about your mission and like how well you're executing it and less about like how famous the person on your board is going to be. That's a, I mean, I've seen that, I've seen that a couple of times. So the electeds is the common one you see where like, you're basically putting a famous person on your board, but anytime you pick like the CEO of the major industry in your town, yes. right? That person's yeah. going to give you 0.001% of their attention and, and isn't necessarily going to be the best person that's going to be moving your mission forward. I'd be, I'd be super careful and, you know, say, avoid it unless there's some compelling reason that requires you have an elected official on your board. I mean, I am, I am thinking I have one exception to this, like, so someone that, um, you know, is a city city councilman, um, in Las Vegas and had a very, very personal tie to the mission, right? helped actually was part of before he got into politics, right? Was very much um, a part of kind of getting this organization started and off the ground and and has a really compelling story that also is incorporated in, in a lot of his sort of just what he shares politically. And, and that one feels a little different because it just truly is someone who's kind of put the sweat equity in and who's been able to somehow navigate um, and still be someone respected in the community. Um, but there's, I find those to be so few and far between that, that, yeah, I'm like, if there, there's probably other ways, like you could have, 
this is where people start creating like these other things, right? Like, oh, let's create an honorary council or whatever. Like, yeah. but like, like something where we can still show the, the affiliation, but like without having it be someone who's a decision maker. And I definitely think that's the way to go. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am here with the fun, fantastic. What's another F word, Andy, that's that we can use on the on the podcast? Fun, fantastic, frolicking co-host. <laughs> frolicking, yes, I, I frolic frequently. <laughs> he, frolics. he frolics while we do this. Andy Shirk. I, I love you, Andy. And that was fun just thinking of F words that weren't naughty. So anyway. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We have fun here and we hope you have fun listening to us as well. And one of the things that makes it super fun is your questions. So you know how to track us down, nonprofiteverything.com, our own email addresses, whatever. Find us and we are at your beck and call. So we want to hear your questions and we want to mix it up. So keep sending them to us and we hope that that you're enjoying this as much as we are. Hey Andy, here's a question for you. We've implemented a fee-for-service program in partnership with a benefit corporation. The work effort is a split of about 80% us as the 501c3 and 20% the benefit corporation. Now that we've started the fee-for-service, the Benefit Corporation is asking about compensation for his time. We do not have any paid staff, so we were not expecting that. We understand that all revenue generated from this program must go back to the program. Are there any legal aspects we should be aware of? Holy enchiladas. This is like (laughs) um, all the alarm bells should be going off for you. Um, Because there's so many things, depending on what state you're in, there are laws about how nonprofits and for-profits work together in any kind of situation. Um, So, but, but, so number one, whatever your state you're in, research the laws about how nonprofits and for-profits are allowed to work together because there may be, there may be specific contracts that are required to be put in place first. Um, so, so, and what these are for, what these laws typically, and they're different for every state, but what they're typically designed to do is to protect, protect nonprofits from being taken advantage of by for-profits. That's the, the, the general purpose of them and to protect, uh, the general public from being taken advantage of from a nonprofit and a for-profit that are pretending to do something charitable when they're not doing something charitable at all. So the, the state attorneys general have a vested interest in making sure that this is done right. And in many states, there are very specific licensing rules, their requirements, their forms that need to be filled out before you enter into any kind of um, contractual financial engagement between a for-profit and a nonprofit. Okay. That's number one. Number two, a benefit corporation is a made-up thing. In many cases, and especially around the U.S., in Nevada is one of the 
And, and th- there's a reason for it, and I'll get into it for in a second. But a benefit corporation is just a box in a lot of states, just a box that you fill out on a form when you decide you want to become a corporation. You can be an LLC, you can be an S corp, you can be a C corp, or you could be a benefit corporation. That's it. There are no legal requirements beyond that in most states in the U.S. about what that means to be a benefit corporation. There are some suggestions and there are in, in some cases, there are rules about how the board of the benefit corporation, ha- what recourse the board has on the benefit corporation if the managers of the corporation are not behaving in a particular way. But it's all advisory. It doesn't, there's no legal teeth to it. A benefit corporation is not a nonprofit. They do not have to play by the same rules. And in many, many cases, nobody even realizes they checked that box. Like whoever put the thing together accidentally checked the benefit corporation box And now they're using that as some sort of cudgel to get people to think that they're a better company than they are. So Andy, what's then what's the benefit? Like, I'm just trying to like in my head think here, what's the benefit to then saying you're a benefit corporation other than you can put, I guess you can promote yourself as we're a benefit corporation and make your own definition up if there's no legal structure around it. Right. So, so full disclosure. So the, my company Valor CSR is a certified B Corp. We are also a benefit corporation registered in Nevada. So we are both. So benefit corporation legislation was put into place because we had a problem. And this actually happened a long time ago in, in like the Ford motor company, Ford, back Henry Ford back decided that in some place in Michigan, he was having a challenge with his workers because his workers couldn't afford to live in the city where his factory was. And so he built a whole bunch of housing, like low cost housing specifically for his factory workers and the company Ford paid for it. Then the stockholders of Ford Motor Corporation sued the company saying, no, the purpose of your business is not to buy houses for your workers. The purpose of your business is to make money for shareholders. They sued Ford. They won. So a company can't necessarily do things that are, according to that law, that are outside the specific purposes of a shareholder for the shareholder to be making money, which is what a shareholder is supposed to. That's the that's right. the rules of the game, right? So what Benefit Corporation does is it modifies the language a little bit that says, we are putting shareholders on notice, At the outset, we are putting shareholders on notice that in some cases we may not make decisions that maximize shareholder value. And you're okay with that by becoming a shareholder, an investor in this particular business. You, we are making this explicit up front. And you can then, if someone sues you, you can use that as like, by the way, we told you ahead of time, we are a benefit corporation. We are going to do this. So you can sue us, but we made you aware of this by being a benefit corporation upfront. Um, on top of that, there is a rule. So there is a, a nonprofit called B-Lab. And what B-Lab does is they've got the B-Impact Assessment, which any company in the world, whether you're a benefit corporation or not, any company in the world can take the B-Impact Assessment and basically get scored on their behaviors. Like how this is how we treat people. This is how we treat our customers. This is how we treat our suppliers. This is how we treat the environment, like all of these different things. And you get assessed a score and the average score of all the people that have taken it. And this info may be, might be a little outdated. The average score of all the people that have taken it is 50. If you can score 80 or higher, you can say you are a certified B Corp, which is separate from being a benefit corporation. So it's like a, a third party certification that you're not full of baloney. 
Um, so it sounds so, like you could literally, as you're setting up a company, you could say, I'm a benefit corp, just whatever, and then never go through the actual third party piece from what you're saying. Yeah. And there's nothing okay. because it's not because it's not a legal requirement. It's just a it's a it's it's you saying out loud to potential shareholders that we may not necessarily only use our money to pay shareholders back. We might yep. use it for a social purpose or some other purpose. So don't sue us. That's all the benefit corporation is in 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 small organizations. Like if it's just like a like a single person with a services firm, if they check the B Corp box, I mean, they're the board of directors. They're the sole shareholder. So it's effectively meaningless for them. Um, so which is a long, 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 long way of saying just because someone says they're a benefit corporation doesn't mean that they're any better than anybody else. It means they checked a box. If they're a certified B Corp, then there are many more things that that they've put in place that say because because B Lab is only certifying people that meet a particular requirement. So if they're a certified B Corp, then I'd say, OK, maybe you can trust that this organization is probably has their heart in the right place. They're trying to do the right thing if there's a certified B Corp. And there's lots of sort of like lots of companies are certified B Corps. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see a list of all of the companies. I think there are over 2,000 around the world now. Certified B Corps include people like Ben & Jerry's, Patagonia, like all the companies that you think are really, really good are probably certified B Corps. Well, and I would think that list is going to continue to grow, particularly as you look at consumers and so many younger consumers who are like, I only want to engage, buy products or services from someone who's committed to, you know, X, Y, Z, right? Like who's committed to a greater good. So like, I'm assuming that number is going to continue to grow over the years. Right? Let's hope. Let's yeah. hope. Although, you know, not to, this is not a political podcast, but there is a, there is a current backlash. There's an article in the New York times, not that long ago, a oh. backlash against woke corporations. Oh, so, really? so, oh. so you're, yeah, you're putting yourself out there as like, you know, I don't know me personally, I know what side of that line I want to be on. Yeah. <laughs> like if you don't want to do business with me because, because of the way I treat my employees, that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay. You're with like, that. see you later. <laughs> Sayonara. Save me some time. Yeah. <laughs> but back to the question, um, legal aspects we should be aware of. Yeah, you should absolutely have some sort of contract in place. There should be some sort of legal agreement in place between you and this benefit corporation that explains how the whole thing works. For somebody to come back later and say, hey, now I want compensation, then that's the whole point of a contract. And we've talked about this, I think, is a long time ago. We've talked about like what the point of a contract is and the difference between a contract and an MOU. Like there's no such thing as an MOU. Like a contract really is just a document so that everybody's on the same page. And I know lawyers make it more complicated and they try to make it sound harder than it is. But all it is is a piece of paper that says like, this is a list of all of the questions you might have about our our work together. And these are the answers to all of those questions. So can we think of any more questions we might have about our work together? No. Okay, then this contract is a good contract. So if you don't have anything, you end up in a situation like this where you're like, well, I thought he was a nice guy, but now he wants money. And I didn't think he wanted money. Like, why would you put yourself in that position? Get something in writing first. Get an attorney that speaks English to work with you on it so that it says what you think it says. Um, and and don't trust that someone, you know, when the big bad wolf is wearing grandma's clothing, don't <laughs> don't don't necessarily believe that it's grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Great analogy. Um, 
So other than the contract, are there any other, and you've, you've explained sort of the, the, the certified B Corp versus benefit corporation stuff, but like, are there any other legal aspects that this listener who wrote us this question, like, should be looking at? Other than yeah. the contractor, is that depending really, on what's just depending yeah. on what state you're in, there may be um, commercial co-venture laws. So that's what you're going to Google: commercial co-venture um, in your state to figure out what rules apply to you because it's different for every single one of the states in the United States. Um, and in some places, there's no such thing as commercial co-venture laws. In other places, there are. They can be in in places like New York. They can be very complicated. Um, and there are specific rules about what what you can and can't do and how much money you need to pay and what reporting needs to be happening. Um, so you're going to probably need assistance with that if you're if you're in that commercial co-venture law space in a state that needs it. But that doesn't if you li- if you're working someplace where one of those doesn't apply, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have some sort of actual written agreement, solid written agreement about who is responsible for what. Profit has elected a new board treasurer. He has managed finances at his day job, but isn't familiar with nonprofit finances. Can you elaborate on the differences between nonprofit accounting and for-profit accounting? I think the word elaborate is really dangerous, isn't it? <laughs> Yikes. Like, we could be here yeah, all can. day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want elaborate? <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to vote no. How about a high level, Andy? I think everybody's going to vote no. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. So the, the main difference is, I mean, really there aren't that many in the, there are a couple of things that are different. One is in the financial statements, the way the financial statements are created. The the thing that would usually be like shareholder equity in a financial statement in a balance sheet is actually going to be called net assets. And then because, and the really the difference between that is shareholder equity is just money that you would pay back to the shareholders. But because a nonprofit has either no shareholders or infinity shareholders, depending on how you look at it, there's no money to pay out. So net assets really just means a subtraction problem between assets and liabilities, which is how you do the math, right? So it's it's just collecting the the collecting the the assets that the organization has after you pay out its liabilities. The other thing that's going to be different is you're going to be keeping track of restrictions, which is going to be the more complicated piece. So in in for profit accounting, there's no concept of um, I'm going to give you money, but you can only spend it on this one thing. And that's very different from nonprofits. And that's what a lot of nonprofit finance and accounting is keeping track of is what does that mean? How do I know? Um, what what do I do internally in the financial system to be able to keep track of that information so that if somebody asks me, I can answer appropriately? Um, the other thing you need to do is there's a, a new financial statement called the Statement of Functional Expenses, which requires you to split your expenses into three buckets program, which is what you spend on doing your nonprofit stuff, fundraising, which is what you spend on fundraising and administrative or management in general, which is what you spend on just keeping the business open. Um, there's very specific rules about how you put things into which bucket. Um, we could go for days talking about allocations and, and how you're going to keep that. I think if, if you're bringing a new financial person on the board, 
um, as treasurer. They don't have any experience in nonprofit fundraising or nonprofit finance. I'm sorry, nonprofit finance. Um, the best thing you could do is give them the audited financial statements and say, read these because that's going to give you a lot of the information that they're going to need. And they are written in a way that someone with financial background can understand. Um, and then there's a bunch of books out there. Like it, it, there are a lot of books out there that are like, how does my, how do I talk to my board about nonprofit finances? Um, and we'll link a couple in the show notes that I I'm familiar with that I think are pretty good examples. Um, but, but there's a ton of information out there that, that, um, goes into excruciating detail <laughs> that elaborates <laughs> on the differences between nonprofit finance and for-profit finance. And what about like from an in-kind contributions? Cause I'm assuming that's probably something unique as well for not, you know, to a nonprofit versus a, a for-profit. How would that get handled, Andy? Yeah. The, on the donation side, there are a lot of things that are, that don't exist in the for-profit world. So in-kind donations is one of them where someone is giving you usually a product, um, less usually a service, unless it's a very specific kind of service that then you book as revenue. Um, so like if somebody's given you a bunch of socks and you're going to give those socks to people, you record that donation of socks as in-kind because they gave you the socks. Um, so, so that's a, that's different. Um, there are rules about pledges that are different. Like if someone says, I'm going to give you this money in the future, there's a whole bunch of rules about how you, how you would record that, which are different from for profits. So on the donation side, yeah, that's where a lot of the differences lie. Um, and there are a lot of different rules about how you, um, how you have to discount things like pledges, like what counts as in kind and what doesn't, um, that, that, that I think definitely uh, fall under the category of details. It almost though, you know what, it's interesting because as I hear you, you know, chatting about this and, and talking about this, I'm sitting here thinking it almost feels like it would be really helpful for like a new, a board treasurer who maybe has never worked on anything with nonprofit finances or accounting to just have a general understanding if they don't know much about nonprofits, how nonprofits are structured sort of like just a 101 of some of those things that we're talking about, right? Like, because the donation side of things, given that that's one of the more maybe complicated or different things for someone, would be really helpful for them to understand all of those, you know, like, here's the ways we we make money, right? Like, and here's the kinds of things like, and, and I don't think sometimes I think people who are not finance, like feel intimidated by like, how am I going to train my new treasurer. And yet it could be just as simple as like kind of a nonprofit 101, like overview. Yeah. One of the, so I had a treasurer once, um, that, that was when I was the CFO and he came and I asked him to be the treasurer and he initially said no. And he said, the reason I don't want to be treasurer is because I'm not a finance person. I don't, I'm an attorney. I don't know. And I actually explained to him that that was a thousand times better than having a finance person because He's walking into it with the, I don't know how this works lens. Show me how it works so that we can explain this is why it's different. Whereas if you have somebody who's an accountant or God forbid works for a bank as a salesperson, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just like assume that the salesperson in the bank knows how finances work and they don't, they're salespeople. So <laughs> they come in and they, they, they have this like, nobody wants to tell them this is how it works. And they never want to say like, I actually don't know how this works. Like they're never going to say that. So having the attorney come in and say that right away was like, this is the perfect kind of new treasurer because now we can say, 
let me show you how it all works. And I, let me explain it to you in a way that you're going to understand it. And to be honest, he was a much better treasurer than a lot of the other treasurers that are no offense. If you're all listening, right. Call me. I'll apologize in person, Um, (laughs) but he was a very good treasurer because he came with the sort of open mind about, I want to learn about this. Actually, it was initially like, I don't want to learn about this. And then I convinced him that he did. Um, And he was a really good treasurer because he was like, he was open to like, so explain to me how this works, uh, which was a great position to be in rather than like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I thought you knew this already. Right. Or the people who like have the overinflated ego, like I am the expert, I am the CFO at my company, so I know it all. Right. And then there's no humility or like, I don't know, it, they're almost trying to prove something and that can be challenging too. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's not to say that like, so I, I've also had people on my, on a finance committee that were CFOs at of like course. large multinational companies and they knew the business. They did not. I mean, I learned so much from some of these guys um, and, and ladies that were coming in from this like high level finance world um, that that, that, you know, it, it isn't, I don't want to necessarily say that your best finance committee people are people that don't know anything. That's not true. I think there are people that know a lot of stuff that you can learn from, especially because I think depending on the size of your organization, a lot of people that get thrust into the finance role um, were bookkeepers at first, or, you know, just like general aptitude. I know business things. Um, so there are lots of things that you can learn from a really good finance committee too. So don't be afraid to put people on um, that are going to challenge you and are going to know more than you do. That's a, that's those, you kind of want a good balance between people that know more than you do and people that don't know very much, but are open about it so that everybody can kind of come to like the good position in the middle of like, at least you have to explain it well, but you've got somebody that's going to say, actually, that's not how that works. Right. You want to do, do you, balance. Do you think though, Andy, I, I mean, I just want to take that a step further because I do think people are of the notion you've got to have someone with the financial expertise and background to serve on your finance committee. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about the realities of it. So let's say I am, you know, the finance guru and you bring someone on the committee who is, you know, the lawyer you talk about who doesn't who has an app, you know, an, an eagerness to learn, but doesn't know a lot. So I feel like I'm wasting half my time on this committee trying to educate this person. Like, have you seen how that balance has worked out? Like, and how you do that in a way that doesn't frustrate the expert who just wants to get the job done versus the person who's in learning mode? Well, I, I, I think a good sort of finance leader in an organization needs to be able to communicate with everybody. Like if you want to do your job well as a CFO or as the top finance person in a nonprofit, you need to be, you need to be able to speak English. You need to be able to provide reports that people can understand, be able to explain them well and do everything right. So those are two different skills. So the, the communication education is, is one skill like being clear because most of the time, And what you're doing is you're not working with the board. You're not working with the board unless you're in a really big organization. Most of your work isn't with the board or with the committee. It's with other managers and staff. And you're doing program things and you're putting together grant budgets and you're doing all the other just sort of nonsense work of being a finance person at a nonprofit. So so being able to communicate with a line level staff person about how they're supposed to enter their budget and why it needs to be a particular way. And yes, we need you to do your timesheet. And 
Yeah, I I can't. I'm legally not required to be able to help you with what where you're going to put your money in your 401k. But let's talk about it in general principles. Like you have to have that skill if you're going to be good at your job. On the other hand, you also have to be like, you know how the whole thing works. You know where the bodies are buried. You know all the arcane rules about absurd things like capital leases <laughs> and yeah. and pledge discounts and nonsense that like you're only going to use once a year. Yeah. Um, so you have to have both of those brains engaged and having a, a, a board committee where both of those are required is probably a good position to be in. You want to be able to have people that are going to remind you oh, by the way, that's a capital lease. Did you do it right? We should make sure it's correct before the auditor gets here. That's awesome to have on your committee, but it's also important to have somebody on your committee that's going to be able to, to make your board, the rest of the board, feel comfortable about the financial statements, right? That, oh, it's not really complicated. Let me explain to you how it works, right? Let me yeah. be able to speak to you board member to board member in board member language, not in <laughs> super complicated CFO language. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And I love that, right? Because I think that's the part that intimidates people. And that's what gets people to shut down, not ask the questions. And and that's stifling in a whole other way. And like, we all know, like, the more people you have looking at this stuff, the better, because even the best finance people sometimes miss things. So it's like really it. good, right? It's to have confusing a- and complicated. Yeah. yeah. And having somebody to back you up on like, did you yeah. do that right? And, and that's the dream, right? And, and nobody, those are rare finance committees that you get. Because you usually get like people that are sort of half engaged, um, the people that you, that, that aren't, that are there because, because they work at a bank. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're going to start getting hate mail at some point about this particular I, topic I because I do, I, I harp on it only because I see it so often is like you put a salesperson on your board because they work at a financial services company doesn't mean they're a finance person. They're a yeah. salesperson. So don't assume that they know what they're talking about. I say that a lot. We're going to get hate mail. I apologize in advance. Call me at home. I'll take you to lunch and we can, I'll apologize over lunch. Hey, they may actually love you, Andy, (laughs) and love us both. Because here's the deal. I don't think any of those, like, I've met those people, right? There's some really cool people who do that, right? Business development for their banks. And I'm sitting there going, they don't want to be stuck in these finance roles either. They're like, no, 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 no. Put me on the development committee. Right? (laughs) That's where I belong. Much better place for them. Thanks for listening to us today. Stacey and I really appreciate that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to have us yap at you about nonprofit stuff. We really enjoy, at least I do, I really enjoy having the opportunity to just talk to Stacey about stuff. We um, enjoy it. I love it. I learn something from Andy every time. Yeah, I mostly I learn from Stacey patience and to be nice to people. <laughs> which I probably should have learned in preschool, but apparently did not. So, <laughs> hey, hey, Andy, let's talk about patients who sa- talked about the punching bag during this episode. That's true. That's that true. That was me. So, so there's there's a couple of things that I think that tasks that we've given our listeners. One is we want your worst example of running your nonprofit like a business. If it's a meme, that's great. If it's something else, if it's just a story, maybe a haiku of how to run your nonprofit like a business, what's the the stupidest thing you can think of that fits that theme? We want to hear that. The other thing is, um, I think we wanted pictures of you hugging your device. I think that's the other thing. And we, <laughs> we said that if you send us that, we will make it the episode image. So 
it will show up on anybody that's using some sort of player to play their podcast. And it shows like the right now it's showing the little nonprofit, everything square. So it will be you instead. <laughs> so if you want that, send us that. We do reserve the right to veto any we don't think are appropriate because we want to keep our G rating, which is important. But uh, yeah, send us oh, that. So those are your two tasks. Yeah. That's and no fun, Andy. Who wants well, to keep the G rating? Who said this was supposed to be fun? This is work. And then the other thing is send us questions. We need questions. We like questions. The stranger, the better. Um, the the more complicated, the the messier, the the more fun it is for us to answer. And of course, we love giving really complicated questions to guest experts too. So suggest us some guest experts to call or, you know, it's like seriously having, you want to talk to somebody? You want to talk to a foundation about like why they're so terrible? Um, ask us a question and we'll chase down a, a guest expert at a foundation and ask them that question. And Andy just gave you about 10 calls to action. So just pick one of those. <laughs> no, do all of them. Do all of them. <laughs> right now. Pull the car over. Do it right now.